Today, our guest is Dr. Michael Freebay. I talked to him about the startups he is involved with and the future of healthcare. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Exponential Organizations podcast. I'm your host, Lance Pepler. The world is going through a particularly challenging period at the moment. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you thought leaders from around the world and to help you to transform your organization. This show is sponsored by Storm, a leading exponential growth consultancy. They can provide services ranging from an hour advisory call with a network of over 5,000 consultants worldwide through to the 10-week XO Sprint. So visit www.ideastorm.ca.za to find out more. So today our guest is Dr. Michael Freebay. Michael has been involved in diagnostic imaging and image-guided therapeutic uh, products and services, as well as other related medical technology ventures. As founder, innovator, CEO, and investor, he is a board member of three startup R&D companies, a shareholder of several other startups, as well as investment partner of a medical technology startup fund. He's a regular speaker, listed inventor in over 100 patent applications, and has written over 250 articles and conference papers. From 2014 to 2019, he was a professor for image-guided therapies at catheter technologies at the Medical Engineer Institute at the Otto von Grücke University. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, In Magdeburg, Germany. And from 2019, he is a member of the medical faculty. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Lance. Uh, Michael, I can hear birds in the background, which is awesome. Michael, where am I speaking to you from today? And could you give us a bit about your background? Okay, very good. So, I, I, by the way, let me introduce my dog. He's always with me and he actually crawls up right now into my lap. So I have to push him back down. I'm sitting in my garden in Germany, which is quite unusual for April. Um, we, we, we definitely see global warming here. So it's 24 degrees and um, sunny, no cloud in the sky. And um, in general, I, I'm an actually, actually an engineer. So, but I haven't done real engineering for a long time. So I, I went to the US in the, in the 90s. Uh, did some MRI stuff and then went back, uh, started companies and basically was an entrepreneur for, for the, uh, since then. Uh, however, I always was interested in, in, in this innovation generation approach in how do you actually change things uh, and question things and develop things from a, from a higher level and then have basically people work on it and actually create it. So I'm not the one who has the soldering. I, I don't know how to do this anymore. But um, I think you need to have a broad knowledge um, and some, some depth as well. You need to combine these things. And that's actually how you can create innovation. Um, and that, that's actually my, my, um, my love at the moment is I like to teach innovation generation. I like to teach people of how to actually approach that with a dedication on healthcare. And how, how did you get involved in healthcare? Um, I was uh, I was actually an electrical engineering student in, in in Germany, and then I went to the U.S. Actually, I wanted to go to the U.S. Uh, that was end 80, 80, 88, 89, and I was working at IBM, and um, so we were already involved in, in a lot of projects there. And uh, I applied just basically for for a fellowship, um, and the fellowship was at a medical company in the Bay Area. So it was just by accident. I, I was not planning that. So, and I got stuck there. And obviously you've been stuck there quite a while and very successfully because you, you worked for a university, um, you're a professor, 
how did that all happen? Did you did you start designing technologies and um, you know uh, applications, or how did you get involved, and then all the way up to being a professor at a university? Uh, that's a, a it's not a planned step in, in in all honesty. So I was uh, I was working as a as a normal design engineer, development engineer in the U.S. So working on a new MRI systems, mm. and then um, I basically was fed up. I uh, wanted to go back to Germany. Went back to Germany and um, started working at the university. And I was fed up with the professors there. So it's it really <laughs> kind of like was pushed out of this. And I was pushed into entrepreneurship. I was pushed into basically starting my own company. And then I stole an idea in the from the U.S. and implemented that in Germany. So I was running mobile MRI systems, CT systems, cath labs. PET scanners and all this kind of stuff, which was rather successful. And I ran this till uh, beginning of 2000 when I sold the company. And in the meantime, I was already starting on uh, thinking about what could be the next step. And then I got involved with the university. Um, so I, I got the PhD, by the way, beforehand, because otherwise you cannot uh, get into university. So I got a PhD in 93 on, on, on a healthcare-related topic when I came back from the U.S. And um, then I thought, that is really cool. Let's, let's try to uh, stay with that topic and let's try to generate ideas and prototypes and, and seeing whether you can actually uh, do follow-up um, startups, um, uh, companies with that, and maybe uh, license models or bring it into the market. So that was, uh, it was kind of like force. It was nothing really, I have to say, planned. It was kind of like, how would you say? It was a flow, you know, mm. weird, as weird as it sounds. <laughs> I, I'm, I see that in my life and my career as well. Yeah. I, I'd like to think that it's planned, but it's almost by accident. <laughs> in a way. It, um, it, it is by accident. Yeah. I just maybe I want to think because I was when I when I basically started the third company and, 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 and sold it, I, 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 I was not always successful at everything I have to say. So some of the companies also went out of business in, 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 in essence. But then I decided that it would be a good time to become a professor. Yeah, well, this is easy said, but it's very, very difficult because Definitely. the, the now the environment, and this is actually one of the problems and may, may need to change, the, the system uh, in the university is very locked up. So professors typically hire professors and they want to see people like them, you know, who are research oriented, uh, not that commercial oriented and kind of like sit in their offices and do some research. I, I, I want to make it a little bit negative, sounding negative at the moment. And they hire people and they don't want to hire an, an, an outsider who has not been in the system and has, has come from an entrepreneurial side. They don't like that. Mm. And it's very difficult to actually get hired. Uh, so that's the first thing. And then to be accepted in that system as a real peer. I have to say, however, I'm not sure that's really that important to be accepted. I think it's actually good to be somewhat of a revolutionary, uh, uh, have a revolutionary <laughs> yes. idea. <laughs> and um, I think that universities need people coming in from the outside to actually bring some stimulus in as well. No, absolutely. I, I, I see a lot of you know, professors and uh, people involved in universities all start up side ventures. So they all have their own, you know, consulting companies that they set up uh, as part, you know, part of what they do as the commercial side, and then they act as professors in universities. Yeah, but that's, a, that's a, I think that happens just about anywhere. People are just too afraid. They are not bold enough to leave their job behind. They are civil servants, in, in, at least in Germany, they are civil servants. They have a guaranteed uh, position. 
and they basically have their salary and then they run something like a consulting company which is not an exponential organization it's a it's a it's a very linear scalable business if you invest more time in consulting you get more money but they are not typically not bold enough to do things on their own and to quit their job and i think you need to do that to be really um somebody who takes it serious or you are just somebody who says i want to create innovation and then transfer innovation outside and have somebody else follow up with that that's also okay now can i ask you about the startup straight away did you start your medtech startup while you were a professor uh, at the university no, no, no. I, I, that, that was actually that the professorship came much later. So I, I started basically when I came back from the U.S. I did my Ph.D. on the side, and while I was doing the Ph.D., I started my first company. Mm. And um, so I was working half in research and and half on on the commercial side. That was actually not bad because you got really connected to the medical field uh, in, in in very intensively at that time. Mm. And then I started several other companies, and only after I uh, did like the third or fourth company, I. I went to really become a just at least for that for the last five years a full-time academic, and now I actually quit the full-time academic job and I'm back entrepreneurial. I'm back an entrepreneur now. So, and what are you doing at the moment? Are you working with the startups that you know that you created, or are you doing something completely yes. different? No, I actually most of the time I I I start so I start the companies myself or at least part of the of the of the uh, 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 founders team, and uh, I'll, I'll help them actually establish or, or come up with the with the initial idea, and then maybe I put them on. Uh, I don't I don't like calling it business plans because I really don't like business plans. They are they are like forty page um, monsters that nobody really reads. Uh, I I believe much more into the process of, of thinking about value propositions, business model, canvas, the stuff that Alexander Osterwald came up with. And now that I'm part of this uh, exponential organization, of course, of how to uh, put some of the exponential attributes back into the, into the company very early on, because I think they need to start thinking from it early on. Otherwise, it will be very difficult to actually uh, create the model um, future-oriented, future-proof. Mm. So I, I'm basically very early on and I try to consult them and coach them and help them get the financing. It's also not always works and uh, is successful. Mm, no, uh, so what startups are these and uh, what kind of principles do you take and, and put into your startups so that you're advising? So two part question, really, what are, what are the startups that you on? What type of startups and, and what are the exercise principles that you adopt? Now, uh, first of all, they have to do have something to do with healthcare, obviously, because I, I always believe that the business angel, I see myself more like as a business angel, as an active founding business angel, and the, 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 the angel part has two, two wings, right? The first wing is give them a little money and support, and the second wing is actually help them grow their business and, and scale the business and actually establish the business. So I try to do these two wings, and so I, I believe that second wing I can only be good helping companies if, if it's in a domain that I know and it's a domain that I can globally see that we have connections and contacts. Yeah. And uh, that's why I would not invest in anything but healthcare. And in these days, I am very um, excited and focused about things that have, that have to do either with prevention. So doing things 
at home, uh, moving from acute care to home care, to, uh, from, from, from acute care to ambulatory care to home care, do things at home where you can monitor your own health. And the second thing is um, I'd like to improve, and that's where I'm, uh, some of my investments are, improve existing procedures, um, surgical procedures, uh, ah. with minimal invasive access, with robotics, and also with um, uh, putting AI um, and uh, segmentation, image analysis, and um, other things, so sensors in there. So, so those are the two things that I'm primarily interested in, hmm. and uh, where I would basically um, either put my own thoughts in there or help startups. What was the second question? Have I got to land? I'll ask you about the first question <laughs> some more. <laughs> what, what, that sounds fascinating. I mean, what, yeah. what are the? Can you tell us a little bit more detail about what you're currently working on or what the startups are working on? Yeah, one, one, one startup is, a, is, is one we just got funded. Um, it's called Surgical Audio Guidance. So what we do there is it's very, it's very interesting. We use audio sensors to actually uh, give guidance information where a tool is. So I, I just give you a very quick example. So you have a needle and you put an audio sensor on the outside. And now you measure when you put the needle in the interaction of the tissue with the needle. So you, there's, a, there's a vibration that creates a sound. The sound is propagated to the top. And then you analyze that using AI, some, some feature extraction. And you can actually analyze which tissue you are in. And you can also analyze um, in combination with some imaging, where are you? Now, this sounds complicated and, and, and maybe you don't even see the application at the moment, but think about robotic surgery. Robotic surgery is something where you have a device that goes in and you have no haptic feedback. You don't have a clue of what's happening. You only see the reaction of the tool with the tissue, but you have no feedback going back. Is the tissue hard? Is it soft? Is it rough? Is it, is ah. it smooth? And so this device gives you actually feedback information um, and, and can, can give you some, some really good judgment on where you are. Now, this technology can now be used for all kinds of other things. You can actually go into the knee and maybe determine what the cartilage quality is. You ah. can use it to, from the outside to analyze what is the carotid flow, what is uh, uh, auscultation, can you hear something? Mm -hmm. So these are things you can also add to your cell phone, for example, and just hold it there and, and then get an information about the quality of your carotid flow, the quality of your ECG signal, maybe in combination, or what, what, what the swallowing does, or maybe even give information on whether you have a stenosis and how that develops. So there's a lot of things sure. you can do with that. So this is one of the startups. The, um, the other one is, is dealing with um, it's, it's interventional MRI. So basically you use an MRI system and uh, use the diagnostic information that you get to immediately do a surgery and, 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 and wow. basically a procedure. Um, the idea is if you have this cool diagnostic tool, why not actually use it right away to uh, fix things that you that you see? So you stick in, stick a device in, and and and, uh, and uh, do a, a spinal. No, it's not a spinal surgery, but you, where you basically uh, do protrusions of your spinal cord. And so you, there's a lot of things you can do with these devices that they have sure. not been made for with fairly inexpensive uh, systems. Wow. And a third one, that's, that's the one I really like a lot too. It's, we call it Ratprint. It's, it's, it's um, basically create a, a 3D printed patch 
that you put on the skin and that patch is is um is basically matching the surface uh, of a tumor for example and contains radioactive material so we basically use a 3d printer to create a personalized patch for uh treating a superficial cancer wow. um uh personalized cancer and we use a radioactive um material that basically irradiates the tumor cells so i yeah. thought it's pretty cool that is amazing. So you mentioned yeah. at least four exponential technologies there. You mentioned robotics yeah. and you mentioned AI and you mentioned 3D printing and bioprinting. Um, uh -huh. So you're obviously really, really involved in exponential technologies. What, what role does that have in healthcare? Uh, and you're obviously a, an innovator yourself and looking at these exponential technologies. Well, I, I think healthcare will, will uh, I'm, I'm very much in, in, in line with what Daniel Kraft from, uh, from Exponential Medicine and Singularity University says on this one. We need to move significantly away from sick care. So you only go into a doctor when you're sick, but mm -hmm. you're not actually preventing things from happening. So we need to go to a real healthcare system where we try to keep people healthy. And uh, just as a quick example, you're not staying healthy when you are going to a doctor's office typically you know you're surrounded by 30 other sick people mm. and they don't make you healthier uh, typically so there needs to be a, a a different type of of healthcare delivery where you do a lot of analysis at home a lot of judgment at home there will be a transition point where you go back to the health to the to the healthcare provision to the doctors to the hospitals but it will be much later mm. and so we need to invest in in tools and devices that are actually helping you analyze and monitor your health status, compare it with yourself, compare it with peers, maybe com use genetic information, um, daily information, um, uh, monitoring information to basically judge your status. And then I kind of like give you some advice. By the way, I think your heart is, you, you, your, your, your carotid arteries or your, your coronary arteries are clogging up. You should actually get a catheter intervention to prevent you from getting a heart attack now mm. when you get that information this is cheap you know it's a one-day procedure you go in there you get it done you go back out you go home you were not really sick it was a minimal invasive process if you get a heart attack you act or get a stroke even worse you may be handicapped for the rest of your life. You, it's, it's a huge burden on your family. It's a huge burden on the healthcare system, on the cost. So mm -hmm. we need to move to these type of procedures rather than um, acting when something happens. Mm -hmm. So this is, my, this is what, where I believe that, uh, where we need to invest. And we also need to invest, I, I said that in an interview yesterday, um, that somebody from the US was asking me about healthcare changes. And I said, uh, one of the things that we really need to, do is get the commercial and the, and the money making and profit component out of healthcare, or at least reduce it so we make it available to everybody on the world. Um, I really do believe that healthcare is a is a is a right, uh, not a privilege, mm. and um, th that we need to maybe think about reducing cost and doing more disruptive things than we do right now. Uh, maybe uh, uh. one quick example on that a, a large company that manufactures diagnostic equipment a CTO MRI thinks about how we make this MRI more faster more reliable and um, maybe have a better resolution the question is what do you need that for this is an incremental innovation that uh, will also create some incremental information 
but it will not really change healthcare, but it will make it significantly more expensive. So we need to think differently. And, and I think that's where, where the future of healthcare is, I hope. Mm. And so I just want to follow up questions on both of those things you mentioned. So I recently interviewed Dr. Tiffany Vora, which was fascinating. She was mm -hmm. a fantastic person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she was also speaking the same thing about, you know, sick care to healthcare. How does that actually look? Because I think in the past there were, uh, you know, ideas that it would be in your urinal and it would measure, you know, analyze your urine to check, you know, different stats in your urine. But how does how does healthcare at the at, at home look like practically before it you know triggers a, a notification to say that you need to go and research or go and get this checked out? How do, how do you think that actually looks? Um, well, let me let me start saying first that it's really uh, easier said than done uh, because we are we are talking about a human being, and if we do something wrong, uh, you could theoretically jeopardize your life. Uh, so it's it's yeah. it's, a, it's a very hard call, and it's it, it's very difficult, and to make to put trust in these systems and put trust in in in, in prevention prevention models, um, and we also have regulatory approval that needs to be um, done and dealt with, uh, which by the way I think we need to reform. We need to do something about that too, because a lot of these things are based on on a gold standard that compare sick people treatment with new devices treating the same sick people rather than preventing things so it is it is a difficult process and 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 it will also be a, a difficult process looking at the societies i mean you're in south africa and i'm not entirely sure how that work how that works but i would assume that you basically live your life and uh maybe every once in a while you go to a to a to a screening to a prevention process unlikely though Maybe as uh, a man, you should get your, your prostate checked uh, uh, after 50, right? And, and women yeah. go to breast cancer prevention. But other than that, you don't do anything. You no, just basically wait till, you wait till you get sick. And then depending, and that's one of the reasons why I said this democratization is coming up in the US, you go to the doctor only when you're really sick. If you don't have a health insurance, only if you're really sick because you can't afford it. Yeah. So you wait as long as possible. And the longer you wait, the worse it gets. Mm. So we need to completely shift that thinking process and we need to break up the uh, the um the setup that we have right now um where doctors deal with you on a on a basis that you are sick and they want to get you healthy again rather than keeping you healthy it's also from a from a money point of view how is that being reimbursed how is this being paid for who takes care of that so there's a lot of philosophical questions in there and a lot of uh, political questions that i cannot answer and, and and but i can only stimulate that thinking process so particularly when you have ai these days which could help a lot and could predict certain things then the question comes out but how is it going to pay? It? Who, who gets money for it? How is, how is the development cost being paid for? Now in Germany, we now can get, actually it's called the Healthcare Act, the Digital Healthcare Act. We can actually get digital apps on prescription. So see, this makes uh, the round in the world. That would be really cool. I, I'm not sure that I answered the question, by the way, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I felt in the flow right now. So <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Because I, I mean, I don't want to go to the doctor ever. So I would love to check yes. my condition, you know, on a continual basis before I go to the doctor at all. And so I was just so wondering if that's what sort of healthcare was intended to be in the future, where, you know, to check yes. that you're getting a, health, a heart attack before you get the heart attack. 
and how that would actually look because I can't really imagine how that's going to look in the future apart from you know doing a blood test at home or pinprick or a year you know urine you know, looking at your urine or something do you think it would be easier than that even that you would just do sort of yeah. measure your temperature or put a patch on your arm yeah. or something to to check your different stats I mean, you know yeah, sens sensors and and uh, like, I think now I'm jumping maybe to the to the AI part quickly. Um, AI needs input, and um, so you need you need to generate data points, and and um, th these data points need to be somehow connected to each other, and and nobody's doing this at the moment. So you can check your urine instead of doing it at the doctor's practice. You can do it maybe at home, but it's still the same data points, right? And um, what you need to what we need to get done is to use data points that we're not considering as data points at the moment. Um, like what I just said with the audio signal, for example, nobody thinks about audio. What the hell does audio do? Audio is not used anywhere, but it could provide a lot of cool information. And we need to connect these data points to get more information. It will take a while. And, and, and I firmly believe that we will have the tools available to do most of the checks at home. And most of the checks that are maybe counter check with the doctor that connects to you um, but we will have that at home that we have devices that um, are measuring things that we don't consider important at the moment mm -hmm. what 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 you do with with current technology is you basically try to resemble the normal process of of going to a doctor and then they think how can we do this with digital tools so you basically do an analog process digital so instead of using a thermometer you may be able to use a camera that measures your 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 uh, your uh, skin or looks at the skin variation and maybe comes up with the, with a uh, temperature scale or it can actually see very clearly that your skin is moving a little bit uh, in in color which you can extract the heartbeat from so you make an analog process digital but important it is to actually think about how you can implement new healthcare methodologies and new workflows. This is something that the medical doctors don't want and that the system don't, doesn't want. They only want tools that help them do the same thing they have done before rather than completely rethinking healthcare delivery. And I think that's what we will do with home care. That's what we'll do with monitoring. And that's what we'll do with the new devices that will come up. Mm. We still need the doctors though. Well, let's let's switch to the doctors, um, which uh -huh. you, you spoke about with you know universal healthcare or bringing healthcare's costs down so that everyone can afford it, and those sort of things. Well, uh, let's talk about the the delivery and the education because at the moment, if you want a good job, and like, you know a mother wants a good job for their son, you're kind of hoping that they go into the medical area. You know, they they study for seven years, become a doctor, and then if they're really good, they'll specialize and maybe become a surgeon. And earn huge amounts of money, um, mm -hmm. you know, being being a medical, uh, being in the medical fall area, and that's kind of surely how it's how it's been done for a while and expected to be done in the future in a way. So you know, if you want a if you want a good job that's going to pay, you know, for for your speedboat and your holiday home, then <laughs> you become a surgeon, um, and and so that's that's how it is at the moment. Things are changing, it seems, though, because if, if you if you got robotic surgeries and you got AI giving you the the information and those kind of things, then maybe your specialization almost sounds like it needs to get less 
And you almost got someone who manages a process and gets the results and knows how to understand the results rather than someone who's highly trained and gets paid a huge amount of money for actually doing the surgery itself. Um, yeah. Is that, is that kind of right? Or how would you see healthcare and the education looking in the future? Now, um, I, I, yes, doctors are paid very well. Uh, to a certain extent, everybody should be paid well, right? But uh, going just into a profession because you're paid well is a, is a, is a very lame excuse. And it, it, it's, it's, I think it's very one-dimensional, right? We do things because we get paid well rather than we do get paid or we do, we do something that we really like and enjoy doing. And I think medicine used to be a little bit more like, oh, I really want to cure people. I really, really help it. And now only the top students are basically accepted in, 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 in medical programs. Only the top students are then advancing. You are very, very uh, strictly educated. You, 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 in, in a normal medical uh, curriculum, it's, it's not allowed to really look, or you don't have any time to look left and right. That's actually one of the things that um, I believe should happen, that we, we train uh, medical students, future doctors, to be more technology-oriented, to be more understanding about uh, empathy, uh, about also economics on this one, and, and to, to, to learn dramatically more soft skills than they do at the moment. But um, I, 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 I see this all changing. I see this, uh, this attitude towards, not specialization, but this attitude towards let's make the most money out of it changing because that means you can only get paid when you do things uh, when you do things means you need to get you need to be sick um, because otherwise I can't do anything as you stay healthy um, you know you, you won't, won't visit my office right and I cannot make any money we need to focus on that health part and we need to rethink how reimbursement is done I don't believe that surgeons actually will disappear and that specialized surgeons will disappear but they may be less because you may be able to do things before they actually become acute mm. and um, but you will still have specialization and maybe even more specialization. Um, but let's face it, uh, I, I, I fell from my bike not too long ago. I had uh, something torn, a ligament torn underneath my shoulder. And I went to, to, a, uh, to a hospital orthopedic and he's a friend of mine. He says, you know what? If I do something, if I fix you, you have a chance to come back to me in five years and we have to fix it again. And if I don't do anything, it's exactly the same. So I would advise you as a friend <laughs> not to get anything not yeah. to get anything done but on the other hand as a as a as a hospital surgeon i have to advise you to get the surgery because otherwise i will not make any money the hospital mm. will not get any money so these are the things that um need to be somehow considered too but um th this is more like a political question i i'm i'm not good at answering i'm just i can only show with that that things like that happen yeah i know sure it, it, and I think you know, a lot of percent, a big percentage of doctors probably go into it to help people, but it's like becoming a lawyer. Do you, do you become a lawyer to actually help people with their legal issues or do you help them to make lots of money? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So. Yeah, maybe a combination. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. I, 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 I'm, mm. But I, that's like the skeptical view on it. I'm, I'm sure because I've been to my share of doctors who, you know, they, they're the grumpiest people. <laughs> they're making lots of money. <laughs> there is, uh, there is this, uh, there is this, uh, there is uh, uh, a article from the Journal of the American Health Association. In the, in the basis, uh, it, it, the title is says, "Explain or describe your doctor in two words." 
and uh, or your experience with your physician and um, I, there was not really anything positive on it rude um too fast uh, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, arrogant and you know but the question you have i think you have to go a little deeper and ask yourself why is that is that because they're really arrogant or is it because they're really rushing or is it because they are kind of like tied up into the system they have to do all this administrative work they have to deal with this with that with something else and they don't have enough time and they don't get the right support points so I, I i believe that if you have these technologies available that could actually do all this stuff and the medical doctor could concentrate on dealing with the patient then he probably would not be as rushed anymore maybe not as unfriendly and uh, and nasty anymore so um <laughs> I, I know I, lovely I really doctors do as well yeah there's a lot of lovely doctors but uh, on the other <laughs> hand the, the, the doctors have when you are starting to cough, right, and you go to a doctor's office, there is probably about 10,000 possible reasons for your cough, but there's only mm. three that the doctor has in his mind or her mind. Yeah. Uh, and, and these three, they focus on, and then they give you basic medication for this, doesn't go away, and then take this one, uh, doesn't go away, take this one, and then we maybe have to check more. So uh, systems and processes and uh, AI and all the other tools, they could actually help you know, narrow it down more accurately earlier on. Mm. And with that help, um, treat the patient quicker, more efficient and cheaper. So I, I, I have a lot of hope in technology. Cool. So when I was doing research uh, for this interview, Michael, I came across another exponential technology called blockchain and an organization uh -huh. called Blockchain for Science, of which you're very involved. Could you give us a little bit of an overview of what that is and what it does? Well, first of all, I have to say I'm not that involved in it, but I'm, I'm very excited about it. So it's, it's an organization started by a friend of mine, uh, Sunke Butling, um, who, is, who is an incredible guy. He's a, a radiologist who thinks about minimal invasive therapies and is, is probably the, uh, the guy who, uh, who knows most about blockchains I've ever seen. So he's a physician. He's extremely technically oriented. Now, um, what what we have in science uh, and and in in related segments is we have a lot of things. I don't I, I don't know if you know how many papers are being published every year on on medical progress, hundreds of thousands. You know, and how do you actually get down to what is important, what is the essence of it? How do you verify that the things that have been done are actually right? How do you uh, ensure that um, you get proper funding for your for your uh, stuff? How do you ensure that data is being dealt with wisely and accurately without any any bias so it's also important for ai how do you make sure that data can be transferred sensitive health data can be trans uh, sensitively transferred uh, and you know there's a lot of other issues involved where blockchains could be the solution mm -hmm. and blockchains could be something that's help actually the progress of science uh and help you actually publish the right data uh and um uh, make sure that there is uh, enough data available that ensures that you can repeat, the, uh, you know, some of the scientific experiments that lay behind it. So there is a lot of things where, where blockchains could be of traumatic importance. I give you one other example, which I like a lot. Um, I have, I have at the moment 16 or 17 PhD students in my lab. And so they write a doctoral thesis, right? And uh, they have to do some independent research. Mm. At the end of the day, however, they're extremely dependent on me 
So do I like them? Do I not like them? Do I actually make them do more or less? I am the one who determines on whether they are ready or not. Mm. I think that's unfair. Uh, I think that we, sh- we need to get more um, uh, tangible, not tangible is not the right word, but more measurable input, which basically says, if you have done that research, you have published it here, you have actually done five master thesis uh, uh, supervisions and this and this and that, you get a block chain tokens for that and when you're done with that you're done with it you get mm. your phd thesis you have to defend it so we need to put more um how would i say fairness into the system and more um openness and more um uh, more ways to actually verify that what what has been done actually can be repeated and and and, and has actually provided valuable data that uh that i can rely on other than that, as a scientist, you sometimes read the papers and the first thing you do is you try to repeat the experiments. You try to repeat it because you don't trust the results that have been published. And that's pretty sad. Michael, if people want to read up uh, more of what, you, what you're doing and also contact you, how should they do it? Um, I, have, I'm, I'm, I have to program my own web page. So I, I have a very, very, sorry to say, it's called freebillab.org. <laughs> So basically my, my last name combined with lab, L-A-B dot org, uh-huh. or they actually try to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and that's probably the best way to get mm. a hold of me. Can but they in contact the, in the you there on I, LinkedIn? Sure, they can contact me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm very responsive. So I, I usually, um, this is one of the things that I really uh, don't like is having too many mails in my inbox. So I try to get rid of them by answering, not by deleting them. So... Fantastic. So, Michael, thank you so much for talking to me. I really found this fascinating. Um, it's, it's a world that I don't live in very often, but I've just enjoyed just being in it a little bit, finding out what's happening. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously interact with you on OpenEXO as well. So thank you so much. It's really been fascinating to talk to you. And I thank hope you, you the much, listener, Lance. has found this as interesting and useful as I did. So if you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email is lance at ideastorm.ca.za and the website is www.ideastorm.ca.za and I'll have Michael's uh, LinkedIn profile and details and also a link to his, I'm sure, very brilliant website. So, no, it's <laughs> not brilliant at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you, Thank lance. you, bye. Bye.